This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Friday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio. I'm Gene Gums, your fully vaccinated host. I got my second uh, shot of the Pfizer vaccine yesterday. No problems, no issues. I have a a bit of a sore left arm. That's it. Uh, And, uh, you know, I've heard uh, that, that there have been people that you know, several hours after getting the test, have run fevers or had some other issues. I had nothing, so uh, which is great. I'm uh, I'm very happy about that. I had I had one friend who said to put her down for the count for three days. Uh, so I am very uh, very glad, and I know my wife's uh, friend and loyal listener of the uh, program. Uh, Anne had some issues um, uh, for a little bit, not nothing too serious, but you know, it, anytime you run a fever, it's not fun. So. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I did not have that happen. So I'm ready to rip the mask off and go out and breathe fresh air in a store. Can't do that yet, but man, it, it almost gives you this feeling of empowerment, doesn't it? I mean, those of you that have had the vaccine, it's, I mean, I know we're not out of the woods yet, but you kind of, you kind of got this feeling of being, uh, invincible now. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm sure if it's not COVID, it's going to get me something. Well, uh, speaking of that, news came down this morning. Uh, Prince Philip has passed away in England, uh, Queen Elizabeth's husband. 99 years old, uh, just uh, less than two months away from his 100th birthday. But he had recently spent a month in the hospital, came home, uh, and passed away uh, just this morning. Uh, the news came down. I was actually watching a Today Show when the uh, the news happened. So uh, Prince Philip passed away at the age of 99 uh, before we get to baseball and uh, all the good things happening with the Boston Red Sox last night, uh, our yesterday afternoon, um, there was a report came out yesterday, last night. Dennis House, who used to be on Channel Three, is now at WTNH in uh, New Haven, uh, came out with a report last night that the University of Hartford is considering a drop from Division One athletics all the way down to Division Three. Now, if you don't know what that means, it basically means you go from giving scholarships to play the sports at your school to giving zero athletic scholarships. You can still give academic scholarships. For Division Three. there are no scholarships. Uh, Division Two, you can give scholarships, but not as many as Division One. But D3 is completely... Uh, non-scholarship so they would you know fall in with the likes of you know Trinity College and Wesleyan uh, St. Joseph's Albertus Magnus in the state that are uh, Connecticut College that are all division three programs Um, and the reason is is that they you know said they're look we're hemorrhaging money it's costing them 13 million dollars a year they're losing 13 million bucks a year on division one athletics Um, and you the president of the university made a comment. Uh, Greg Woodward is his name, 
And he said that, look, you know, everybody who is in Division One loses money. With the exception, he said, of about 22 schools. And that, you know what, that is accurate. You know, what are the what are the sports that make money or the schools that make money in Division One athletics? It's the big time football schools because that is where the money is. So Alabama's making money. Michigan is making money. Uh, you know, all the big football schools, Ohio State is making money because of the money that they get from bowl revenues, from television revenues, uh, they make money. All the Division I schools here in the state of Connecticut, Hartford, Central Connecticut, Quinnipiac, Sacred Heart, Yale, they're all losing money on athletics. And Yale's a little bit different in that Yale uh, isn't about athletic scholarships either. Yale's about, that's about prestige if you're going to Yale. But here's the thing. And let's, you know, all right, so if we, if we go under the premise that there are only a handful of schools, 20-plus schools that make money on Division I athletics, you would say to yourself, well, why in the hell would any university want to have Division I athletics? Well, it's pretty simple. It's about exposure. It's about recognition. Um, the exposure that you get from participating in a national championship at the Division I level is not just about making money on the sport. It's about bringing exposure to your school, getting students to want to come to your school who aren't necessarily athletes because of the exposure that your university has gotten. For instance, Quinnipiac University. Nobody outside of New England and probably in, in large part outside of the you know Connecticut or the tri-state area knew what the hell Quinnipiac University was until it went Division One, and then all of a sudden their hockey program became one of the best Division One college hockey programs in the country. All of a sudden you've got Quinnipiac University and the Frozen Four and everybody's going, where the hell is that? And... That is, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's advertising revenue. The money that you're spending on Division I athletics is advertising revenue. Now, I realize you can't write it off as that on your taxes. If, you know, I, don't know, I don't know how universities do their taxes, but you can't, I mean, I, you can't write it off as advertising, but that's what it is. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Now, Obviously, everybody in the state of Maryland knows who it is because it's part of the state school system. You remember a few years ago when they beat number one Virginia in the NCAA tournament, the first time a 16 seed had beaten a one seed? Nobody had heard of UMBC until then. Now, all of a sudden, you got people that, you know, they're buying their merchandise. You know, there's, there are people that enrolled at school there because of that. And, and not only did they beat Virginia? Their social media team was absolutely brilliant during that tournament, which increased the exposure even more. That's what Division One athletics is about. Sacred Heart University, I worked at for uh, nine years. I worked at Central Connecticut State University for a few years. I worked in Division One here in the state of Connecticut. And yeah, they all lose money. But Sacred Heart University, in addition to its athletic programs, because of the exposure that they have gotten, their student population has exploded. 
Their women's basketball program was one of the best in the country for a mid-major program. They made the NCAA tournament a couple of times. That brings students to your university. To go out and play, you know, major universities. When I was at Sacred Heart, we went and played the University of North Carolina. Nobody knew where the hell Sacred Heart was, but that's how people learn where you are, by playing these big schools. You know, and look, it is, there's no question that it is much cheaper to run a athletic program in D3 where you're not giving scholarships, but make no mistake, some of the losses that the $13 million, for instance, that Hartford says that they lose on athletics, a lot of it, folks, are paper losses. Now, why do I say that? Because they are counting the amount of money that they are giving out in scholarships in terms of tuition and room and board dollars. You can make the case that if it were not for Division I athletics, the kids that are at that school right now might not be there at all. So maybe, maybe it's a wash because maybe, you know, the only amount of money that you should probably be counting as a loss are the, the, uh, are what you've given out for meals. Because the dorm rooms are still there, you know, and maybe they wouldn't be filled if these kids weren't in school there. You still have the same number of professors that you would have if you were a Division three school. So all you're doing is you're putting these athletes in classes that you've already got. It's not like giving up the tuition dollars is costing you anything. You already have the classrooms. You already have the professors. So a lot of this is paper losses. I've said that when UConn was talking about all the money they lost on athletics. And they get charged for the tuition dollars. Again, you've already got the professors and the classrooms. Why is that being counted against the athletic department in terms of their operating budget? It doesn't make sense. You know, and and maybe again, maybe your pop maybe your your uh, enrollment would be that much less if you weren't division 1 because kids that are going there now because you are a division 1 institution wouldn't be going if you were a Division three school. I mean, and look, at Division three, you know, at least in Division one, I, I mean, you've also, you've got corporate partners, you've got advertising. You know, there's no question that it costs, you know, at Division one because you're taking, you're, you're flying places, right? You, you've got to take long trips. You, uh, you know, you're staying in nicer hotels. You're not staying at a Motel 6, you know, when you're playing in Division one. Um you know, the other assertion that Greg Woodward made in this story that was in the Hartford Current this morning, Don Memore had it, was that, uh, you know, everybody thinks you make the NCAA tournament and you hit the jackpot. He said, we didn't get a cent from that tournament. Uh, let me just say to Greg Woodward, baloney. Do you get millions and millions and millions of dollars? Well, you can. The farther you go in the tournament, the more money that you make. But even just making the first round of the tournament, the school does get money. Now, to be fair, what happens is, because they're in America East, the money that, I, and I want to say, I'm just going to throw a figure out there. It's like a million bucks, somewhere in there. The money actually goes to the conference, and then the conference divides it up evenly among the members. Okay, so, you know, did they get millions and millions of dollars? No, but they got, you know, probably a couple of hundred thousand, three, a few hundred thousand dollars out of it. Plus, 
your travel is reimbursed when you go. So it's not costing you money to fly the kids back and forth to the NCAA tournament in Indianapolis or, you know, in other years flying all over the country. That is reimbursed by the NCAA. You have a per diem for meals that is reimbursed by the NCAA. Your hotel rooms are paid for by the NCAA. So you did not, it did not cost you a ton of money to send these teams to the NCAA tournament. I know because I did it. I was at Central Connecticut and at Sacred Heart when we had schools go to national tournaments, and I know how the system works. So he's being a little bit disingenuous there. No, they don't get millions, and there are people that think that. Now, did Baylor and Gonzaga get a good amount of money from the NCAA tournament? Yeah, because the more you win, the more money you get from. And where does the money come from? Television revenue. That's where the money comes from. All that money that the NCAA is getting from CBS and TBS to, to broadcast the tournament, that's where that money comes from. And the farther you go, the more you get. So did they get millions? No. But it also didn't cost them money to go. But again, at the end of the day, Division One athletics is about exposure. And I, look, there's nothing wrong with Division Three athletics. That's how I started my career, working at a little Division Three school in Springfield, Massachusetts, called Western New England College, which was dwarfed by its neighbors, Springfield College. Which, by the way, you know, Springfield College was a Division Two school. They gave scholarships when I was at Sacred or at uh, Western New England. Now they eventually became a Division Three school. They decided that it made more sense for them to be a D three school. Because to me, uh, uh, D2 isn't very prestigious. D2 is kind of like purgatory. You know, you're, you're, you're a wannabe. So you, you should go one way or the other, either go big time or go the opposite way. You know, we've seen in recent years, Merrimack College has gone Division One. They were a Division Three school that were, or a Division Two school that was playing Division One hockey and eventually decided to go D1 and everything. Same with the University of Massachusetts Lowell. You know, but it's about exposure. Merrimack UMass Lowell get exposure by playing in Hockey East. It's a big deal because it drives your enrollment, not just in athletics, but in the school in general. So I think, look, look, U-Hart's got to make the decision that they think is best for them. I think this is a bad move. I really do. Um, again, I'm not writing the checks at Hartford. But I think that you are you're relegating your school to uh, to I don't want to maybe obscurity is not the right word, but irrelevance. You know, here's the thing. Somebody made a great point um, last night. I was looking at some of the social media, and they made a great point. You know, after Sacred Heart and Quinnipiac went Division One, not only did it raise the exposure of their athletic programs in the school in general, but their their academic programs improved. They used that exposure to improve their academics. Hartford really hasn't done that. Hartford isn't really known as a great academic institution. Um, their music program is fantastic, by the way. You know, that might be... Uh, you know, the Hart School of Music may be uh, a bit of an, an exception there. But by and large, their academics have not, you know, gone through the roof. Whereas Quinnipiac and Sacred Heart have continued to add to their academic programs. So I don't see how lowering your school's profile by going to Division Three 
helps the University of Hartford. Now, this study, by the way, was done. It was a an independent uh, consulting group called Car Sports. And by the way, Jeff Hathaway, the former athletic director at UConn, is one of the managing partners at Car Sports. And and I I dare say that Car Sports could do this same study at 95% of the Division I schools in the country and make the same conclusion. But you can't just look at it as bottom line. You know, again, some as I said, some of it's paper dollars. The, the $13 million is not really $13 million, I guarantee it. Um, but I think you have to look at it as an investment and as advertising and try and weigh the risk and the benefits of the exposure that Division One athletics can get you. I think, and I think that if Uhart decides to go to Division Three, they are making a big, big mistake. All right, there's that. You know, and look, I'm sure that uh, uh, many schools have gone through this. You know, I mean. We've got Division One schools, you know, figuring out ways to make it make it happen because they're dropping sports. U- University of Connecticut just dropped a bunch of sports, you know, and the pandemic, you know, gave Division One schools that maybe had been thinking about dropping sports an excuse to drop sports, you know. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe what we don't need to have are Division One schools with thirty-two sports. <laughs> Having said that, I worked at Sacred Heart where they have thirty-two sports. It's insane. You know, you know, maybe Division One schools, you know, to, to cut their losses a little bit, you know, maybe it should be 16, 18, 19 sports, and you pick out the ones where you think you could be the most successful, and you go you go there. So, you know, to, to be continued, I will be surprised if Uhart pulls the trigger on this because the other ancillary part of this is you're going to affect your alumni giving if you do that. There are alumni that are very proud of the fact that they are a Division I institution, and they give money to the university, a lot of times to the athletic department, because that you are a Division I school. And if you take that away, you may also be taking away a lot of the donated dollars that your university gets. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, before we get to the Red Sox, a couple of interesting things in Major League Baseball yesterday, and the first one... Uh, word came down that Major League Baseball uh, seized a number of baseballs thrown by Trevor Bauer in their game against the Oakland Athletics on Thursday. That the balls had visible markings and were sticky. They've been sent to the league offices for inspection. Now, you know, look, here's the deal. Prior to the start of the regular season in March, Major League Baseball sent out a memo to every team and said, hey, we're going to be watching this. We're going to be making sure that pitchers are not putting things on the baseball. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the increase in spin rate and, you know, uh, the, the pitching has become so dominant that there is legitimate concern that the baseballs are being doctored, and they warned everybody. Um, you know, now even if they are, nobody saw Bauer put anything on the baseballs. 
You know, so how can you prove that that's what happened? Um, you know, you don't know what would, you know, what's going to come down, but supposedly what they had said, they were going to use the Statcast data that analyzes the spin rates and breaking on the balls and all that other stuff and, and compare it to the pitcher's norms and then, you know, use that as a, uh, as a guide to whether balls are being doctored or not. But what they did on Thursday was not from spin rate. It was from balls being brought to the umpire's attention. Um, now of course, you know, Bauer who loves social media immediately fired off about people that were automatically assuming that he had doctored the baseballs and, you know, basically ridiculing them. But this is the same guy. If you remember back in 2018 on Twitter, he went on a little bit of a rant about how it's so strange where guys all of a sudden have the best spin rate in the, uh, in the league, uh, which by the way, was the Houston Astros at the time. And, um, wondering how that could possibly be and what he did uh later that season for one inning he added spin rate to his fastball you know obviously he cheated to do it but he was trying to make a point that um something's going on now he won the Cy Young last year in that shortened season his four-seam fastball had the highest spin rate of any in baseball and the spin rates on his other pitches spiked up as well. So was he cheating all of last year? Is that how he became suddenly became the most dominant pitcher in baseball? Look, it's a fair question to ask, and Major League Baseball made the point that they were going to look at this. And they have people now, they have compliance monitors. They're like the baseball police at every ballpark. They're walking around the dugout, the clubhouse, the batting cages, the bullpens, looking for rule violations in terms of electronic sign stealing, foreign substances, all kinds of things, you know. So we now have we now have baseball cops roaming around the ballpark because teams won't police each other. So now you have teams roaming or, or teams of cops roaming around the ballparks trying to find cheaters. And you know, my guess is is that they are the ones that noticed this and had it done. Uh, had the balls thrown out. So we'll see what happens. Supposedly, uh, you know, and Bauer seems to point out yesterday, he said, well, how come you're just pointing at me? There's been balls thrown out in other games this year from other pitchers. Why am I being singled out? Now, we don't know for sure that has happened, but for what happened yesterday was that an Oakland Athletics broadcaster actually noticed that the ball had been thrown out of play and that it had been, you know, sent to the dugout and somebody was uh, basically authenticating the baseball. And so they immediately knew something was going on. Has it happened in other games? I suppose it's possible, but there's no indication that it has and Bauer is outraged. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, if they determined that those balls had foreign substances on them, He's going to get suspended, even if they can't prove it. He's getting suspended, and then the and and you know then the players' association is going to get involved in the middle of the you know they're going to have to renegotiate that at the end of the season. It's going to be ugly, you know. And at the end of the day, if they're cheating, just like the Houston Astros were cheating, something has to be done. You can't you can't continue. I mean, the Astros. You know, lost some guys in the front office, but not one player was suspended for the cheating that they participated in 
you know, uh, they can't, the MLB can't continue to let that stand. They can't just say, well, we're going to fire a manager or suspend a manager or fire a front office guy. At some point, if there's cheating going on, the players have to be held accountable. And I'm telling you, uh, Trevor Bauer is going to get held accountable if there's foreign substances on the ball. Whether they can prove he did it or not, they're going to make an example. They have to because if you don't, if you don't, then you're just opening yourself up for it to continue. If you remember, wasn't it back, I don't know, I don't know six, seven years ago? Uh, Michael Pineda, when he was with the Yankees, remember he had like uh, pine tar or something on his neck and the umpires caught him and he got suspended, I think, for 10 games or so. So, you know, and since they've come out and said, we're checking for this, he's going to get suspended if they can determine that they really have been doctored. So uh, we'll see. But it is kind of interesting when you think about it that Trevor Bauer in the last couple of years has been one of the best pitchers in baseball where the early part of his career, you didn't get the indication that he was suddenly going to be that dominant of a pitcher. So it does make you wonder, no question. 31 minutes past the hour. we got to take a break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It's 33 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to The Wake Up Call here on a Friday morning. So in another bizarre uh, twist yesterday after what happened uh, with the Dodgers in Oakland, the New York Mets won a game yesterday because... Umpire Ron Culpa uh, screwed up. It's as simple as that. Um, now, in the ninth inning of the game yesterday, Jeff McNeil had already hit a home run, uh, and he ties the game up with a, with that home run. Well, later, with the bases loaded and one out, Michael Conforto is up, and... The pitch is thrown, and he literally kind of leans into it a little bit and allows the pitch to hit him. Here's the problem, and it did hit him, but the pitch was a strike. Well, the rule states that if a ball is a strike, that it should not be a hit by pitch. It should be a strike. And the count at the time that pitch was thrown was one and two. So Culpa should have ruled that strike three and Conforto should have been out and the next batter should have come up. Now, could they still have won it after that? Of course they should have. But then, so now here's where it gets bizarre. Don Mattingly, the manager of Miami, obviously asked for a review. So they go to the review and they determined that, yes, he was hit by the pitch. The problem is, is that according to the regulations for replay, the umpire and the replay official are not allowed to determine whether the pitch was in the strike zone or if the batter made an attempt to get out of the way. Those are considered umpire judgment calls. The only thing that is reviewable is whether or not the ball hit the batter. It did, but that's stupid. I mean, let's be honest. 
if on a video replay you can see the guys leaning in or you can see that he is crowding the plate so much that his body is literally in the strike zone and he gets hit because his body's in the strike zone, why shouldn't that be reviewable? That's crazy. There's nothing that Miami can do. It is what it is. And uh, the Mets win the game. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, a big thing for them. It was their home opener. Uh, But that's just dumb. And to give Culpa credit, and it doesn't help, he said, I should have called him out. He knew he screwed up. Now, he knew he screwed up before they went to the replay. What he should have done was have the onions to reverse his call. Now, would that have made, you know, Luis Garcia, the Mets manager, go ballistic? Probably. But shouldn't the umpires want to get it right? What he should have done was before they went to the replay, he should have said, you're out. Instead, the Mets win on on a disputed play. Uh, Look, you know, umpires are not perfect. And here's, look, this is one of those instances where if they had robot umpires, and I'm not, I haven't been in favor of robot umpires. I mean, look, we've seen some shaky stuff early in the season, but by and large, we have seen that umpires get it right 95% of the time. Even if we had robot umpires on this one, see, then you're taking, and, and, and by the way, even if we have robot umpires, they're still going to have a guy behind the plate because he's going to be getting the signal, whether it's a ball or a strike. But it's still going to be a judgment call about whether the guy tried to evade or whatever. So I'm, even robot umpires wouldn't have solved this. What would have solved it was Ron Culpa having some guts and making the call that the ball uh, was a strike. So, I mean, great if you're a Mets fan. Uh, take it and run. But uh, definitely got away with one there. Edwin Diaz, by the way, made his first appearance of the season for the Mets in this one. Uh, pitched a scoreless ninth inning. He ends up getting the win. Uh, that Mets bullpen has been a bit of a horror show. Taiwan Walker got the start for the Mets. Pitched really well. Six innings, four hits, a couple of runs. Uh, and uh, no decision. But uh, a great uh, performance uh, by him in this one as well. All right, the Red Sox. <laughs> it, it You know... Four in a row, four and three record, tied atop the you know tied atop the, lead, the division. Yeah, that doesn't matter. The fact that they won four in a row after losing three to the Orioles is just amazing. Um, Eduardo Rodriguez pitched yesterday. He was pretty good. He struck out seven, didn't walk anybody. He did give up three runs and four hits, but two of them left the ballpark. The one that he gave up to Ryan Mountcastle in the first inning was a missile. That thing was crushed. But then he gave up one later uh, to Luis Severino, uh, the catcher, or Pedro Severino. Luis Severino is a pitcher. Pedro Severino was uh, was wind aided for sure. Um, but at one point he retired eight straight and thirteen out of fourteen, and uh, he looked pretty good. You know, I mean, I think if you are the Red Sox, you have to be happy with what you saw yesterday. He threw seventy nine pitches, fifty six of them for strikes. So that's great news. I'm telling you right now, though, the story right now for the Red Sox pitching staff 
is this kid Garrett Whitlock, the Rule 5 guy they got from the Yankees. Came in in relief again against Baltimore. Two innings, struck out three, didn't walk anybody, made them look stupid. He really did. Uh, So he's now pitched, I think, five and a third innings and has struck out like seven guys. This guy is something else. His changeup is awesome. It just dies. Uh, then they got a scoreless inning out of Matt Antrees and Matt Barnes. How about this? You know what? If we get this from Matt Barnes on a, a, a day-by-day basis, I'll be the happiest guy in America. Matt Barnes, who's normally a pack of Rolades um, in appearance, struck out the side yesterday in the ninth inning. Now, you know, the Red Sox had a big lead. You could say, well, there was no pressure, but he has looked really good this year. And he was a strike away from having an immaculate inning. His first eight pitches were all strikes. He struck out the first two guys, had the next guy 0-2, and then he fouled off the ninth ninth pitcher. It would have been an immaculate inning. But he is just the, – the he, what he's not doing is nibbling. You know, and he's throwing his fastball for strikes, and his breaking ball has been nasty, and guys are biting on it because he's been dotting his fastball for strikes. So, uh, fourth straight game that the Red Sox have had double-digit hits. Uh, The middle of their lineup, the two through five hitters, went nine for 18 yesterday. J.D. Martinez with two more hits, including another extra base hit. He became just the fifth player in MLB history to have an extra base hit in seven straight games. He's got, I think, nine extra base hits in seven games. He's hitting 433. Uh, Rafi Devers signs a life, hit his first home run. It was a bomb. How about Christian Vasquez? Three more hits. I mean, I, I don't know who's hotter right now. Is it JD or is it Christian Vasquez? Uh, Alex Verdugo had a couple of hits. Everybody kind of got with the parade yesterday. Kike Hernandez uh, hit one out, his first of the season. Uh, Bobby Dahlbeck went over again, struck out a couple of times. You know, you really wonder how long the leash is going to be for him. You know, with with veterans on the team like Marwin Gonzalez, who's a pretty good first baseman, you know, and I know Dahlbeck's got a lot of potential and he's got a lot of power and everything else, but you wonder how long the leash is going to be. Uh, as far as Baltimore went yesterday, now I'm going to say this. Matt Harvey pitched well for the Orioles. The problem is, is that they let Matt Harvey go one inning too long. He was really good through five innings. You know, I mean, uh, matter of fact, Baltimore led the game 3-2. And uh, he walked the guy to start the sixth. Then he gave up a, uh, uh, or no, he gave up a single to Devers to start start the sixth. And then um, a Vasquez pop-up was misplayed by Ryan Mountcastle. They ruled it a hit. That was a gift, in my opinion. You know, they get him out of there, and then Fry comes out of the bullpen and uh, ends up giving the runs up. So Harvey should have been out of it with five innings and a couple of runs, uh, but uh, the bullpen kind of screwed him on this one. I thought, But I thought he threw the ball pretty well. And matter of fact, there were a couple of walks that he gave up in the first inning, or at least one walk he gave up in the first inning was the only walk he gave up. I thought he was getting squeezed by the umpire. I mean, every pitch was like right on the border, and I thought he got squeezed. But a pretty good performance by Matt Harvey. Uh, so... Now, what's bizarre? Red Sox have today off. Matter of fact, a lot of teams have the day off today. There's only, I think, about eight games today. Very unusual on a Friday. Uh, but uh, 
be that as it may, the Red Sox are off today. Then they will play day games against the Orioles on Saturday and Sunday. And look, uh, we'll see, but you got to think that the Red Sox are at least going to win one more of these. And, and if they win them both, can you imagine that? You lose your first three and then win like six in a row. Uh, so, uh, but we'll see. Uh, you, <laughs> you just got to hope the pitching. And when we, when we had Matt Corey on last week, remember he said his hope and, and he thought that the Red Sox pitching staff could be a major league average pitching staff. And, and if that's the case, then they have a chance to compete simply because of their offense. And so far, with the exception of the one start by Garrett Richards, that has been the case. Now, Garrett Richards is going to get his next start on Saturday. You know, if he lays an egg again, you know, you're going to start worrying about him a little bit. But again, I know it's early in the season, but everybody else that's had their turn in the rotation has kept the Red Sox in it. Uh, and by the way, some good news. Uh, Chris Sale was uh, on the field yesterday and uh, is throwing from 120 feet. So how great is that? I mean, he's still a little ways away, but, man, it is really nice to see Chris Sale on the mend, and uh, the hope is around the All-Star break we get to see the big left-hander on the hill once again. It is 45 minutes past the hour. We've got to take another break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call, 47 minutes past the hour. Hey, great story um, out of Pittsburgh last night. The Frozen Four, the University of Massachusetts. Remember we talked about this yesterday, the fact that you know they're in the Frozen Four and they had to leave their, uh, their top two goaltenders uh, and their leading scorer behind in Massachusetts uh, because of COVID protocols. And so they had to throw a senior, Matt Murray, who, you know, his numbers weren't terrible this year, but is a kid that hadn't started a game since January the 18th. Well, he did a hell of a job last night. UMass defeated uh, their opponent last night 3-2. to two. Uh, They will play St. Cloud State on Saturday night in the championship game. Absolutely unbelievable. Minnesota Duluth, um, you know, the defending national champions. UMass, without their leading scorer and type goaltender, you figure you got no shot. Uh, they end up winning it in overtime. Garrett Waite with a goal uh, with 5.30 left in the overtime period to give uh, UMass the victory, and now they have a chance for their first national title against St. Cloud on Saturday. That is just so cool. And the other good news for UMass is the school announced that uh, three of the players are heading to Pittsburgh on Friday, today, and they are in full compliance and as long as they continue to test negative, they will rejoin the team for Saturday's game. So their top goaltender may be back. Their leading scorer may be back for that national championship game. I hope that's the case. Th their backup goaltender last night for UMass, if anything had happened, was a kid by the name of uh, Zach Stegmeyer. Uh, Zach Stegmeyer is their student equipment manager. <laughs> but last night he was dressed as the backup goaltender. That's kind of like... Uh, where was it last year where a Zamboni driver uh, was it for the was it? I can't remember what team it was for, but the, the Zamboni driver ended up playing as an emergency goalie uh, for uh, for an NHL team last year. So Zach Stegmeyer didn't get to play last night, but uh, I'm sure he had a lot of butterflies. But great story. Congratulations for the minute uh, to the Minutemen. Uh, and I wish him a lot of luck on Saturday. I'll definitely be watching that one. Uh, the Masters yesterday 
And uh, I watched some of this. I mean, I watched the Red Sox game, so I didn't watch as much of it as I normally would have since the Red Sox played in the afternoon. Uh, but Augusta National was tough yesterday. I mean, um, outside of Justin Rose, that is. Justin Rose uh, was 7-under yesterday. His next closest competitor is 3-under. Uh, the greens were fast, and uh, a lot of guys had trouble putting, and it just looked like it was going to be one of those masters where the winning score might be, you know, five, six under par. And and it's supposed to get, by the way, uh, it's supposed to get even tougher today. Now, there's supposed to be some rain that may come through Augusta on Saturday that will soften things up, uh, but it's liable to be very tough today. But Justin Rose was in trouble, by the way. He was two over par through seven holes. And then he eagled the eighth to get back to even par, and then he birdied seven of the last 11 holes to go seven under, and he's got the lead after day one. Uh, some of the big names did not do very well. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, I think, was three over par, which, by the way, gives me great joy simply because he's one of these guys that thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he's going to teach everybody else how to play golf a new way. Uh, Brooks Kepka, who is trying to play despite trying to recover from knee surgery, hobbled around the course, still shot a 74. Uh, Rory McIlroy with a 76. Um Patrick Cantley had a 79. I mean, those guys are gonna may have to struggle to make the cut. Uh, John Rahm, uh, Jordan Spieth had a 71. Rahm had a 72, and Justin Thomas with a 73. They're in much better shape. But, uh, man, I'll tell you what, it looked tough yesterday, so uh, it'll be fun to watch today to see what happens. i uh, got a couple of minutes left this morning. Let's take a quick run around some other games around Major League Baseball. The A's uh, futility against the Astros continue. The Astros win again last night. Uh, six to two. Um, they broke this one open late. Uh, they had a two nothing lead into the sixth. They scored three in the sixth inning uh, fr- off the Oakland bullpen, uh, and uh, they end up winning this game big. Uh, so now the Athletics fall to one and seven. Houston is now six and one. The Angels come back to beat the Blue Jays in eleven last night, seven to five. Uh, Mike Trout hit one. <laughs> I mean, it might still be going. They're saying it landed. Uh, he hit an elementary school <laughs> with the ball uh, across the street from the uh, the Blue Jays spring training ballpark down in Dunedin, Florida, because that's where they're playing their home games. I mean, he crushed this thing. Uh, so for Trout, it was his third home run of the season. Uh, he ended up with three hits in the game. But uh, David Fletcher, a two-run single in the 11th inning, the difference in this one, it was his second hit of the game. He ends up driving in three, and the Angels come back to win it 7-5. Uh, to five. So the uh, Blue Jays fall to 3-4, and four, and Oakland try, I mean, excuse me, the Angels trying to keep pace uh, with Houston uh, currently at 5-2. and two. Uh, The Cardinals uh, win yesterday. They beat the Brewers 3-1. to one. Adam Wainwright with five solid innings gave up just one run on five hits. Um, but getting no decision, but the bullpen with an excellent job in this one to give the Cardinals the victory. And we had our first shutout of the season. And I, I look, I hope we see more of these, and we probably won't. But Lance Lynn goes nine yesterday, strikes out 11, doesn't walk a batter, gives up just five hits. He threw 111 pitches, and they shut out the Kansas City Royals uh, yesterday for the first shutout of the season, six to nothing, six runs on ten hits for the White Sox. But man, I, I, you know, I know I'm an old guy, but I just I, 
I just love seeing guys go the distance. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, the Twins uh, destroyed the Mariners yesterday, 10-2. to two. No surprise there. Bad news for Seattle. James Paxton, who signed with the Mariners in the offseason as a free agent, uh, has come down with an injury, and they are recommending uh, Tommy John surgery. So not good news for him. Uh, the Cubs beat the Pirates yesterday, 4-2. to two. Jake Arrieta, a second straight uh, great outing for the Cubs. He goes six innings, gives up just two runs. Craig Kimbrell picks up his second save of the season, the 350th of his career. It looks like he might be back. Uh, you know, he struggled quite a bit the last couple of years, but he has been really good in his outings this year. And this save, it was a five-out save. Struck out three, didn't walk anybody, didn't give up any hits. Uh, and the uh, Cubs get to four and three. The Pirates fall to one and six. Uh, one other quick note: final uh, a, a start maybe for Jeremy Swayman, depending on when uh, uh, Halak comes back. They think Halak might be back for the weekend. But Jeremy Swayman, the rookie goaltender for the Bruins, wins his second NHL start yesterday, and the Bruins beat the Washington Capitals. A great first period. They're up two nothing after one. They scored another one in the third. Uh, and they end up beating the Caps, who are just uh, who were in first place in the Eastern Conference, and uh, actually fell out of it because the uh, Penguins won yesterday. But a good win for the Bruins yesterday as they beat the Washington Capitals four to two. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back, of course, on Monday with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Again, if you haven't been vaccinated, get out and get it done, folks. I got them both, and and didn't have a lick of trouble with either one. Uh, so, uh, if you're worried about side effects, don't be, uh, I think, uh, I think you're good to go. We leave you this morning with some music from queen. Here's an oldie, but a goodie. This is called you're my best friend. We'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to the wake up call on sports country.